If you like audiobooks or audio shows, check out a free trial of Audible. Just click the link in the description. Welcome to Mindshack True Crime. This is your host, Bruce McGuire. And Maxwell Powers. And Johnny Mills. And you are listening to Jack the Ripper, the most famous serial killer in history. This is part two, victimology. Now, the mythology that surrounds the Jack the Ripper case is pretty extensive. There are five victims so-called officially attributed to Jack the Ripper. They are known as the canonical five as part of the Jack the Ripper canon. We will be going over not only just these five, but quite a few other victims that actually might have belonged to Jack the Ripper and how that fits into identifying the killer. If you like our podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Just check the link in the description. Make sure you subscribe to the channel and hit the bell button for notifications on updates. You could also check us out on social media, Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, Patreon. Just check the description. So what I noticed, and I've, I've seen quite a few Jack the Ripper documentaries. I know you're sort of new to the case, Johnny. What do you know about Jack the Ripper? Um... He killed people. <laughs> he that was them a apart. Maxwell type answer. <laughs> so Maxwell and I did the behind the infamy. That was part one of Jack the Ripper on kind of just going over the case in general and why it has such a long standing effect. But this case is actually what what to me what's fascinating is the amount of evidence in this case is astounding for something that happened in eighteen eighty eight. It's just astounding. We have records of when the victims went to work, where they lived, what time they met with people. We have witness reports. We have all these things. Now, one of the biggest problems in the case is even identifying who were definitive victims because some of the canonical five might not have been Jack the Ripper victims. And if that's true, that opens the door to a lot. We also need to examine how many other potential victims there could have been and where. There's a lot of weird coincidences in this case. I mean, we have serial killers from America just happening to be in London at the time period of the Jack the Ripper murders. We have a whole bunch of shady characters just skipping town right after the last murder. Some of them go to America. Some of them are even followed by Scotland Yard because they think that they're Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper actually might have went to New York, and we will be going into that as well. But it's just, it's curious because if the canonical five were not even attributed to Jack the Ripper, I mean, some of them obviously were. All depends on which theory you subscribe to. Jack the Ripper may have been more than one person. Jack the Ripper may have been a female. There's, there's never-ending speculation. There's over 120 suspects, Johnny. You think we should cover them all in one podcast? Or spread it out a little bit? <laughs> It's uh, funny when you said female, though, because I pictured, like, Jackie the Ripper or something. How's Jill the Ripper. How's the DWB angle on it? <laughs> we will be getting into the DWB angle as well, Maxwell. Jack and Jill. There, there's, yeah. So the canonical five are generally accepted as belonging to Jack the Ripper. They are grisly murders. In some cases, the organs are removed from the body. So... Early on, there was speculation that it might have been a surgeon of some kind or someone with medical knowledge. But other people dispute this as well because they kind of just say any any butcher that was familiar with animals would have been able to do it. Um, and it's not like they were doing you know, organ transplants back then, right? Right? I don't think so. <laughs> 
I'd say I don't think they were able to do that till like what, yeah, 50, I don't know about organ transplants, or? but they probably took organs out, like an appendix or something. I don't know. Oh, of course they did for medical. Well, it was actually they actually dug up dead bodies to steal organs. Oh, because they would okay. sell them to medical schools. Ah, That's a good okay. way to I make can, some I money. Can see that. In 1954, the kidney was the first human organ to be transplanted successfully. Damn. Okay, also, so also they were mostly dead. just taking out organs to study them back then. Mm. Just to study, they weren't doing transplants. Also, even like fingerprint technology, a lot of these crime detection technologies were not available at the time. So we have to look at it through two lenses. We have to look at it through the investigators at the time eyes, which we'll be doing a dedicated podcast on the investigation. When how they start doing uh, fingerprint stuff, I just told you it's a couple years after uh, after what the Jack the Ripper murders. Oh, don't you pay attention, Maxwell? Wait, you just said it right now. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> so that that must have been eight, 18, 90 something. 1890 yeah so it's probably Jack the Ripper that started the whole fingerprint thing right maybe yeah not because like they couldn't figure it out so, like, in the 19 it was actually more than a couple years in the 1930s wow they started they discovered the existence of Latin fingerprints on the surface of fabrics most notably the insides of gloves discarded by perpetrators. Huh. huh. Fingerprint is on the inside of the glove. So they cut out the glove and look at it. <laughs> hmm. So that's late, 1930s, because, like, I thought, uh, well, because 1888, right, was Jack the Ripper? Mm-hmm. 1888. <laughs> yeah. 1888. Yeah. So 1890, would, like, would been what you said was fingerprinting started, but you said 1930s based on... Yeah, 1930s. That sounds, that sounds more right. I, don't, I just think, I, I don't know, 1800s. In 1892, the first book was published on fingerprints. It's probably uh, Jack the River. By <laughs> Sir Francis Galton, a British anthropologist and cousin of British. Charles Darwin. Oh. It's like these crazy uh, killings or like these crazy cases always brings out some sort of like technological advancement or something. <laughs> yeah, there's actually mm. there's plenty more that we didn't even get into. But, like Jack uh, the Ripper's fingerprinting or around the same time. And then it's like, well, I might as well say it now. DNA. Sneakers were invented by the Scotland Yard police to catch Jack the Ripper because the shoes at the time were too loud. Sneakers. Oh, that's, that's why they're called funny. sneakers because they had to sneak around to catch Jack no the Ripper. No kidding. That's very interesting. What? I like that one. They have to sneak around. They call them sneakers. That's awesome. That's funny. Well, that's not it's awesome. kind of weird. 1858, Sir William Herschel, British administrator in the District of India, requires fingerprint and signature on civil contracts. In 1880, Dr. Henry Falds, a Scottish doctor in Tokyo, Japan, publishes an article in Nature. 1882, Alphonse Bertillon, a French anthropologist, devised a method of body measurements to produce a formula to classify individuals. The formula involves taking the measurements of a person's body parts and recording the measurements on a card. This, this method of classifying and identifying people became known as the Bertillon system. 1891, Juan Vucetich, Argentine police official, initiated the fingerprinting of criminals. The first case used was the Rojas homicide in 1892, in which the print of a woman who murdered her two sons and cut her own throat in an attempt to place the blame on another person was found in a doorpost. In 18, so that's 1891, Argentina. 1892... 
Sir Francis Galton, a British anthropologist and cousin to Charles Darwin, publishes the first book on fingerprints. In 1896, the International Association of Chiefs of Police establishes the National Bureau of Criminal Identification for the exchange of arrest information. 1901, Sir Edward Henry, an inspector general of police in Bengal, India, develops the first system of classifying fingerprints. 1903, the William West, Will West case at a federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas, changed the way that people were classified and identified. In 1905, the U.S. military adopts the use of fingerprints. Soon after, police agencies begin to adopt the use of fingerprints. 1908, the first official fingerprint card was developed. 1911, fingerprints are first accepted by U.S. courts as a means of reliable identification. Thomas Jennings was the first person to be convicted of murder in the U.S. based on fingerprint evidence. So this is 1911. So yeah, a couple years off. So it was it was a known technology, but they didn't they it wasn't really used. So yeah, the police yeah the police also knew a lot more than they have made public, and we will be going into the police investigation, police records, all those things. But for today, we're going to look at the canonical five and other victims because I have yet to see a comprehensive list anywhere of every single possible victim being discussed on either podcasts or documentaries. So the first generally accepted victim is Mary Ann Nichols. So this is August 31st, 1888. Born Mary Ann Walker on August 26th, 1845 in Dawes Court, Shoe Lane off Fleet Street. She was christened in or some years before 1851. You see how meticulous these records are, Maxwell? Like they, they know approximately when she was christened. <laughs> It's crazy. I can't believe they kept so much detail in the records. At the time of her death, in the East London Observer guessed her age at 30 to 35. At the inquest, her father said she was nearly 44 years of age, but it must be owned that she looked 10 years younger. But she didn't have a birth certificate? Well, they said she was born on August 28, 1845, so I'm guessing they did. Uh, the London Observer was the one who guessed her age. Ah, so and so she was five two, brown eyes, dark complexion, brown hair turning gray, five front teeth missing, and teeth slightly discolored. She Except also before or after she got killed. Before, <laughs> a lot of people had missing teeth. So what Maxwell and I discussed the Whitechapel district of the East End of London. It is not a pleasant place to live. Like people were very downtrodden and some of these women are widely reported as being prostitutes but they weren't really these were side jobs it was common for poor women to kind of moonlight as prostitutes but that's not their main profession like if you have your main nine to five and you also do like a little job on the side you're not going to call your side job your profession and that's kind of what was done with this case he didn't these weren't really prostitutes mm. But, Wanted, they, but they were like a side prostitute or something. Occasionally, not yeah. some of them weren't even pre, weren't even doing it when they were killed. So it's almost it's you'd be a little bit more accurate in saying these were random, more random victims. We'll be going into the specifics of the victims and Jack the Ripper's M.O. and the slight di and the differences in M.O. in some of these cases. But the other thing that's really bizarre about this case is there were a lot of police stationed. There were constables patrolling constantly. The windows of time where he could have done this were very small. So. It's not a lot of people when they think Jack the Ripper, they think like these abandoned alleyways in the dark. There were police patrolling all over the place. Hmm. So the, the Jack the Ripper had very narrow windows of time to get away with his crimes. And the other thing that's kind of bizarre on some of these crime scenes, there wasn't a lot of blood. 
And we will be going into the logistics of the killings in a dedicated podcast, but this is not an average run-of-the-mill serial killer case, one of the reasons it continues to fascinate more than a century after they occurred. And she also had a small scar on her forehead. So this is Marianne Nichols, August 31st, 1888. Annie Chapman, September 8th, 1888. Elizabeth Stride, September 30th, 1888. Catherine Eddowes, September 30th, 1888. He supposedly killed two women in one night. This is known as the double event. And then Mary Jane Kelly, November 9th, 1888, which was the most gruesome, and supposedly this was his last victim. Now, Mary Jane Kelly, he actually killed her indoors in her room. So this was the most gruesome, probably one of the most gruesome crimes ever committed to a human being. Like, she was completely eviscerated. She's just... The brutality of the murder is insane, and he might not have killed again. So, yeah, those are the canonical five. So, Annie Chapman, born Annie Eliza Smith, also known as Dark Annie, Annie Siffy, Annie Sivy, or Annie Sivy, born in September 1841, no exact date. She was five foot forty-seven years old at the time of death. This also kind of dispels the myths that these were young, attractive prostitutes that the killer just selected. I mean, these are middle-aged women with drinking problems. Everybody in uh, Whitechapel had drinking problems. So she's five foot forty-seven, pallid complexion, blue eyes, dark brown, wavy hair. She did supposedly have excellent teeth, possibly two missing in the lower jaw, and she was stout. However, undernourished and suffering from some kind and suffering from tuberculosis. Yeah. She was not described as an alcoholic, even though she liked to drink. Elizabeth Stride, also known as Long Liz, was born Elizabeth Gustav's daughter on November 27, 1843, on a farm called Stora Tumheld in Torslanda Parish, north of Gothenburg, Sweden. She was baptized on December 5th of that year and confirmed in a church in Torslanda. At the time of her death, she was 45 years old. Pale complexion, light gray eyes, curly dark brown hair. All the teeth in her lower left jaw were missing. And she was 5'5", five, five, which I guess was very tall for the time. Long Liz. <laughs> Wait, which one, which one is this? Which lady? What? Which lady was this one? Elizabeth Stride. Long Liz. The one with no teeth on the bottom side. Because I'm looking at Mary Kelly's photograph, too, and it's kind of like the same. They look the same. Lodgers described her as a quiet woman, as a quiet woman who would do a good turn for anyone. <laughs> However, she had frequently appeared before the Thames Magistrate Court on charges of being drunk and disorderly, sometimes with obscene language. Oh, man, she used bad language. She made money by suing and charring and received money from... Michael Kidney, and was an occasional prostitute. So that same night, Jack the Ripper supposedly killed Catherine Eddowes, a.k.a. Kate Kelly. Catherine Eddowes, born April 14, 1842, in Graysley Green, Wolverhampton. At the time of her death, she was five feet tall, had hazel eyes, dark auburn hair. She also had a tattoo in blue ink on her left forearm. The tattoo said T.C., she was also suffering from Bright's disease. Friends spoke of Catherine as an intelligent scholarly woman, but one who was possessed of a fierce temper. 
So Mary Jane Kelly, a.k.a. Mary Jeanette Kelly, a.k.a. Marianne Kelly, also known as Ginger or Fair Emma. Mary Jane Kelly was approximately 25 years old at the time of her death, which would place her birth around 1863. She was 5 foot 7 inches tall and stout, blonde hair, blue eyes, fair complexion. She is said to have been possessed of considerable personal attractions, so fairly good looking. Maria Harvey, a friend of hers, said that she was much superior to that of most persons in her position in life. Supposedly, she also spoke fluent Welsh. Joseph Barnett says that he always found her of sober habits. Landlord John McCarthy says when in liquor, she was very noisy. Otherwise, she was a very quiet woman. Catherine Pickett claimed she was a good, quiet, pleasant girl and was well-liked by all of us. So the, the, thing, the weird thing about Mary Jane Kelly is that there really isn't a lot known about her which has given the rise to conspiracy theories. There's even a theory that she never even died, and there was weird stuff going on with who that was. Was she a different person? And almost everybody in the case is a suspect. So you have the husbands, the boyfriends, the landlord. They're all suspects in the case, so they're like, oh, well, if he was Jack the Ripper, he would say this or that. Hmm. It's it's absolutely bizarre. Who is H.H. H. Holmes? So that was one of the most notorious American serial killers. We are going to do an episode on whether or not he was Jack the Ripper, but just quick offhand, it seems like he wasn't. Okay. So it's not... Just, ch- I, it's interesting, but uh, yeah, they're saying that Meghan Markle is uh, related to him, H.H. H. Holmes. Who's that? The actress that married uh, Prince Harry, or fiancé. Yeah, that's more of a Maxwell uh, area of expertise. <laughs> Yeah, that's random. Because you just search uh, Jack the Ripper, that's like one of the first things that come up on news. Like eighth cousin or something to H.H. H. Holmes. Isn't, isn't Maxwell like 50th cousin when you go down that road? <laughs> to Trump? <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. We're all related. So the victims also, the, all these crimes occurred within a small area talking about a 15-block radius, roughly. So when we look at timelines, MOs, who Jack the Ripper was, whether he killed all of them, whether he killed some of them, if we kind of dogmatically box ourselves into thinking, oh, it was only these canonical five, and it was definitely all five, the double event I find a little troubling as well because of the logistics of that crime, committing them back-to-back. Also, the time... What do you mean by double event? Well, I just went over this when he uh, killed two in one night. Okay, got it. Known as the double event. <clears throat> so, well, okay, there there were about 11 women murdered around the time of the Ripper's reign. Five victims supposedly stood around from the rest, the canonical five. So, supposedly, they had distinct and similar wounds, post-mortem organ removal, and mutilation in certain cases. Another theory, once again, that there was some weird morgue stuff going on, which we will have to do a dedicated podcast on. So there were also conflicting reports of when the organs were removed because it is possible that, for example, someone looking to sell organs on the black market for money removed some of the victim's organs in the morgue, and the Ripper himself did not do it. Yeah. So... When we factor that in, again, that casts doubts on the canonical five. Hmm. 
so they could have possibly been killed by someone else they were killed so, in so that's why like the photographs is crucial at the scene i think i only seen like one photograph w with one of the victims i think it was hmm. mary or something but so these five victims were killed in the darkness early morning hours all the murders occurred on the weekend or within a day of the weekend and happened towards the end of the month or within a week, roughly. So Sir Melvin McNaughton, who had been the assistant chief constable of the Metropolitan Police Service and head of the Criminal Investigation Department, wrote a report in 1894 that stated the Whitechapel murderer had five victims and five victims only. So the McNaughton Memorandum, which was looked at, that had the names of suspects, he came on the case a year after, so he wasn't even around for the original murders. So some people dispute the validity of, not that he was necessarily being dishonest, although he could have been, but he, it could have been biased or incomplete. But he believed there were only five victims. The police surgeon, Thomas Bond, also linked the killings together in a letter that he wrote to Robert Anderson, head of the London CID, on November 10th, 1888. So let's go through how the victims were killed. Mary Ann Nichols, so the body of Mary Ann Polly Nichols, was discovered in the wee morning hours of August 31st, 1888, at about 3.40 a.m. by two carmen on their way to work. Her body was found in front of a gated horse stable entrance on Bucks Row, Whitechapel. The two men who happened upon her, Charles Cross and Robert Paul, saw Polly lying on the ground with her skirts pulled up to her waist. At first, they weren't sure if she was either passed out drunk or dead, but after some hesitation, they approached her and felt her hands and face, which were both cold to the touch. Feeling very uneasy about what they had just stumbled upon, the men hurried off to alert the first constable they could find. Minutes later, she was discovered by P.C. John Neal while passing through Buck's Row while on the nightly beat. He shone his lantern on Polly's body, which revealed her lifeless eyes staring up into the sky. Her throat had been deeply severed in two locations, nearly decapitating her, and her lower abdomen partially ripped open by a deep, jagged wound. The killer had also made several other incisions in her abdomen with the same knife. The doctor who had arrived at the scene to examine her body had deemed her time of death to be less than 30 minutes from the time she'd been found. Annie Chapman. A witness had reported seeing Annie Chapman talking with a man outside 29 Hanbury Street, Spitalfields, 5.30 a.m., the morning of her murder. Albert Kadosh, who lived at 27 Hanbury Street, reported hearing a woman in the next-door backyard say, No, followed by what sounded like a body falling against the fence. Approximately 20 minutes later, her badly mutilated body was found by Carter John Davis near a doorway in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street. Her throat had been cut in much the same manner as Marianne Nichols had been slashed, and her abdomen ripped entirely open. Her intestines, torn out and still attached, had been placed over her right shoulder. A later autopsy revealed that the killer had removed her uterus and parts of her genitals. Elizabeth Stride, the Ripper, would claim two victims in the early morning hours of September 30th, 1888, the first of which was Elizabeth Stride. Her body was discovered in Dutzfield's yard off Burner Street at approximately 1 a.m. The killer had cut her throat, severing her left artery, 
yet no other slashes or incisions had been made. Because of the absence of abdominal mutilations, there had been some doubt as to whether or not Stride was in fact killed by Jack the Ripper. However, most experts agree that Stride was murdered by the same killer due to the nature in which her throat had been cut. It's also believed that the reason Stride had not been mutilated like the others was due to an interruption of some sort. It's possible the killer feared he was in jeopardy of being detected by nearby witnesses and elected to flee before finishing his ritual. Catherine Eddowes, 45 minutes after Stride's body was found in Dutfield's yard, Eddowes' body was discovered in Mitre Square within the city of London. Eddowes' throat had been severed and her abdomen torn open with a deep, jagged wound. Her left kidney had been removed along with a major portion of her uterus. Just before Eddowes' mutilated body would be discovered in Mitre Square, an eyewitness saw her in the company of a man who he described as being 5 foot 7 inches tall, 30 years of age with a medium build, fair complexion, and a mustache. His attire gave him the overall appearance of a sailor. The Stride and Eddowes' murders were later referred to as the double event. Mary Jane Kelly Considered to be Jack the Ripper's swan song, Mary Jane Kelly's murder was the most gruesome of all the Whitechapel murders. She was found horribly mutilated, lying on the bed in her single-room flat where she lived at 13 Miller's Court off Dorset Street, Spitalfields. She was discovered at 10.48 a.m. on the morning of Friday, November 9th, 1888. The landlord's assistant, Thomas Boyer, had been sent over to collect the rent, which she had been weeks behind in paying. When she didn't answer his knock on the door, Boyer reached his hand through a crack in the window, pushing aside a coat being used as a makeshift drapery. What he saw at that moment was absolutely horrific. Kelly's body was mutilated beyond recognition. Her entire abdominal cavity had been emptied out, her breasts cut off, and her viscera had been deliberately placed under her head and on the bedside table. Kelly's face had been hacked away and her heart removed, which was also absent from the crime scene. Kelly's murder was by far the most grisly and ritualistic of all. Following the death of Mary Kelly, it's generally believed that the Ripper's killing spree had ceased. The murders that followed did not bear any striking similarities to those that occurred between August 31st and November 9th, 1888. So, initial impressions on the Canonical Five. What do you guys think? Do you guys think it was definitely the work of one guy? Two guys working together? Or possibly one of them could have been a copycat? I mean, if... If there's a serial killer on the loose and for whatever reason you want to kill somebody, that would be a good way to do it, right? You kill somebody in the same manner as a serial killer, then it would be attributed to the serial killer, not you. We need a dedicated podcast on the letters of Jack Dripper. There were hundreds of letters sent to the police and the press. Hmm. Most of them are... Trying to get credit for the murders. <laughs> well, most of them are regarded as hoaxes because in order to... It's kind of believed 99% of them, if not 100, are hoaxes because... The killer wouldn't really have time to have a job or do any killing if all he was doing is writing letters all day. <laughs> but just general off-the-bat thoughts, Canonical 5, Jack the Ripper victims, yes, no, maybe, uncertain. No way to know. Was there anybody else doing these kind of killings before that? Like, that's what I want to know is just you mean in prior the year, to this. In the year or two before? Yeah. Well, okay, Maxwell, before I get into that, any thoughts? Um, well, it, it happened... I don't know. It happened within three years, so that's like there's five of them. Well, they happened within a few months. Uh, <laughs> it was August 18, to November. 88 to 8, 1891, right? 
people. You're looking at the canonical five? The canonical five started with Marianne Nichols, August 31st. Mary Jane Kelly was November 9th. So is that what you're reading? Like they well, you know what else is weird? To those? Well, well, I'm going to go over the other victims. I'm, we're talking about the canonical five now. Maxwell, we're talking about Nichols, Chapman, Stride, Eddowes, and Kelly right now. Just yeah. those five. That's who we're talking about. These are the commonly accepted Jack Ripper victims, which we're talking a couple months. What I find weird is he took October off. Because <laughs> August 31st, September 8th, September 30th, and then nothing until November 9th. He takes all of October off. Halloween's usually a big time occult holiday. So he took so, and I don't think I'm not sure. He took his kids trick or treat. <laughs> <laughs> he took the whole month off, so it's kind of weird. So Maxwell thoughts? Planning? I don't know. It was August 31st through November 9th. That was the canonical five. I don't know. He needed a break, I guess. All right. So let's go into the. I'm not going to go into most likely to least likely. There's 13 other theoretical victims in varying degrees of probabilities. I'm going to go over all of them in chronological order. So the early, the typically the earliest even remote possibility victim would be Fairy Fay. And this is December 26th, 1887. Hmm. So quite a while beforehand now we don't even know if fairy fay exists with certainty but an unknown female claimed by two authors as having been a ripper victim in the alleys of commercial road on boxing night 1887 the first author to claim she was a Whitechapel murder victim was journalist and historian Terence Robertson, who wrote in the October 29, 1950 edition of Reynolds's News that Fairy Fay was the name given to a woman who was killed while taking a shortcut home from Mitre Square Pub, although there was no such pub in Mitre Square. According to Robertson, Inspector Edmund Reed headed the inquiry into the death of the woman for a few weeks until finally frustration set in and after no information was found, told Scotland Yard he would close the case. It might appear that this alleged ripper victim arose from the journalist's imagination. Robertson led a colorful and controversial career and apparently died by his own hand in New York City. On January 31st, 1970, while investigating a Canadian liquor mogul. <laughs> the second author, known to have written about Fairy Fay, was Tom Cullen. In his Autumn of Terror, Cullen related the same story told by Robertson, but added the important fact that she was, in fact, mutilated. The truth appears to be that Scotland Yard had no records of Reed's investigation into this alleged murder of Fairy Fay. No newspapers have been found with any mention of a woman named Fairy Fay who died on Boxing Night 1887 or any other night for that matter. Nor does the name appear in any death register. Several women with names similar to Fairy Fay have been found. Sarah Fayer, Alice Farber, and Emma Ferry. These women died in either December 87 or December 86 but none of them were murder victims. So the general consensus amongst ripperologists in the field of ripperology, the study of Jack the Ripper, believe that she never existed. The next possible theoretical victim would have been Annie Millwood, February 27, 1888. 
So this is a possible victim mentioned in Sugden's The Complete Jack the Ripper and Hinton's From Hell. She was the widow of a soldier named Richard Millwood. Annie was 38 years of age in the winter of 88. She lived in Spitalfields Chambers, 8 White's Row, Spitalfields, and may have been supporting herself through prostitution, although that is pure speculation. Annie was admitted into the Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary on Saturday, February 25, 1888 from 8 White's Row, Spitalfields. Record report the cause of admission simply as stabs to the legs and lower torso with a knife. An article in the Eastern Post sheds a bit more light on the subject. It appears the deceased was admitted to the Whitechapel Infirmary suffering from numerous stab wounds in the legs and lower parts of the body. She stated that she had been attacked by a man who she did not know and who stabbed her with a clasp knife, which he took from his pocket. No one appears to have seen the attack and as far at present ascertained there is only the woman's statement to bear out of the allegations of the attack, though that she had been stabbed cannot be denied. In her own words, the man was a stranger. The exact number of wounds is unknown. Regardless, Annie made a complete recovery and was released a little less than a month later, on March 21st, being sent to the South Grove Workhouse, Mile End Road. Strangely, 10 days later, on March 31st, she collapsed and died in the backyard of the building while engaged in some occupation. Coroner Baxter headed the inquest on April 5th, and her death was attributed to sudden effusion into the pericardium from the rupture of the left pulmonary artery through ulceration. The death was from natural causes unrelated to her vicious attack over a month before. Although rarely mentioned in the Ripper murders, it is interesting to note that there are certain similarities to her murder and Martha Tabram's murder. Martha Tabram is generally the most likely sixth victim, if there is a, vic a sixth victim, of Jack the Ripper. And Tabram was 39. Millwood was 38. White's Row is only minutes away from George Yard, the site of Tabram's murder. Injuries, repeated stab wounds to the lower torso, are similar to the 39 stabbings of Tabram. So if Tabram is not a Jack the Ripper victim, whoever attacked Tabram might have also attacked Annie Millwood. However, if Tabram is included as the sixth canonical Ripper victim, then Millwood might have to be looked at as well. And Tabram was August 7th, 1888, so just a couple weeks before Nichols. August 31st. Chronologically, next up, we have Ada Wilson, March 28th, 1888. And all of this info is from casebook.org, a very good resource. Ada Wilson, on the belief that the Ripper must have not begun his career as a full-fledged mutilation murderer or even a murderer at all, it has been speculated that Ada Wilson, a sempstress living at 19 Maiden Street, Mile End, might have been a victim of one of the Ripper's early attacks. On March 28, 1888, while home alone at 19 Maidman Street, Wilson answered a knock on the door to find a man of about 30 years of age, 5 foot 6, with a sunburned face and a fair mustache. He was wearing a dark coat, light trousers, and a wide-awake hat. The man forced his way into the room and demanded money. When she refused, he stabbed her twice in the throat and ran, leaving her for dead. 
It was reported that nearby neighbors almost captured the man, but he found escape. Lucky for her, Ada Wilson survived the attack and lived to relate the story to the authorities. There are four reasons why people think this could be attributed to the Ripper. One, the description of the attacker, which fits many eyewitness accounts of the Ripper. Two, the knife being used as a weapon and the throat being a target. And four, she's a seamstress, which is a common term by prostitutes to describe themselves. So one thing that the Ripper isn't known to do is to demand money and robbery. So he's more of a sadistic psycho killer who hates women. That's the general MO and criminal profile, which we will go into in a dedicated episode. So it's not quite the same here, but if he's a psychotic criminal... I mean, we can't necessarily rule out that he would do that, right? So I guess it depends on whether or not you believe if he had an evolving M.O. Because the murders kind of became more and more gruesome, culminating with Mary Kelly, if you believe she was the last victim, which was the most brutal. Emma Smith, on April 3rd, 1888, is another potential victim. So this case is a little weird. 45 years of age, a mother of two, a widower, and a prostitute, Emma Smith is generally looked upon as something of a mystery. Her acquaintances gave her a much higher standing than others of her kind would have received, and the events which were to lead to her death still caused the casual reader to wonder at the absolute strength of this woman. Emma claimed to have both a son and daughter living somewhere in the area of Finsbury Park and was often heard to say that they should do something to help her situation. She had been a prostitute for some time, at least since she last saw her husband. She also claimed to have been a widow and claimed to have left her husband in 1877. <laughs> Emma was also somewhat of a belligerent woman, often seen with a black eye and other various cuts and bruises as a result of many a drunken brawl. <laughs> she was a brawler. She had been living at 18 George Street for about a year and a half with a routine practically set in stone. She'd leave her lodgings between 6 and 7 in the evening, practice her trade for the night, <laughs> and return in the small hours of the next morning. And so it went on bank holiday night, Easter Monday, April 3rd, 1888, that she left around 6 p.m. searching for trade. She was next seen by Margaret Hayes at around 12.15 a.m. This is kind of specific, Maxwell. Look at all these records in the Jack the Ripper case. We know the time she was seen talking to people. She was seen at 12.15 a.m. talking to a man dressed in dark clothes and a white scarf in Ference Street Limehouse. The next time she was seen was about four hours later when she staggered into her lodgings at George Street, her face bloodied and her ear cut with her woolen shoulder wrap pressed between her thighs to clog the injury which would later lead to her death. As would later report, she was returning home that night, probably the worse for drink, when at least three or four youths began following her from Whitechapel Church. They would stop her on the corner of Brick Lane and Wentworth Street, where they beat, raped, and viciously jabbed a blunt object into her genitals, tearing the perineum. The boys emptied her purse before leaving her to die on the street. 
Here's where the story becomes incredible. Having just been beaten and raped and having sustained a sizable and no doubt painful injury, Emma Smith stood up and walked back to her lodgings at 18 George Street. She had apparently removed her shoulder wrap and placed it between her thighs to soak up the blood, which had undoubtedly been flowing from her ripped perineum. The lodging house deputy, Mary Russell, and lodger Annie Lee, amazed that she could even made it that far, rushed her to the London Hospital on Whitechapel Road, apparently against Emma's will. Once there, she was seen by George Haslip, the house surgeon, and she fought unconsciousness long enough to describe her assailants and the details of her assault. Finally, Emma could no longer stave off the severity of her injuries and succumbed to a coma in which she would die four days later. It is believed by most that it was one of the many Whitechapel gangs that killed Emma Smith and not the Ripper. High Rip Gangs were known to patrol the area in which the incident occurred, extorting money from prostitutes and other downtrodden women in return for their protection. In fact, it wasn't until September of 88 that she was first attributed as a Ripper victim by the press. Emma's death is also important in that many believe it may have been a contributing factor in the creation of the mythical fairy fame murder. Some authors note that Fairy Faye was said to have been killed by a stake jabbed into her abdomen, much like Ebba was killed by a blunt object. Therefore, many women claim it was the means of Emma's murder combined with the date of Rose Milette's death, which led to the creation of the Fairy Faye murder. Whether or not Emma's death should be attributed to the Ripper is a question responded to in the negative by almost all Ripperologists. There is no reason to doubt her story that she was attacked by three or four men, no other Ripper victim, with the possibility of stride, was believed to have been killed by more than one man. Also, the fact that she was raped is not consistent with the other Ripper victims. In fact, to accept Emma as a veritable victim, one must accept that the Ripper was either part of a group at one time or even part of a gang. Unfortunately, there is little evidence to back this theory. I don't know. What do you guys think? You think there could have been a Ripper gang of serial killers that kind of alternated? And some of them had slightly different MOs? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I don't know. Is there... Yes, I don't know. <laughs> Johnny, it's rough. That was her story? That yes. she said she was attacked Three, by four, youths or whatever? Four men, yeah. I don't know if anybody saw that, but she clearly was stabbed horribly and died from her injuries, so... <laughs> okay, so... There was a shady character known as Fingers Freddy. <laughs> I wonder if this is where Freddy Krueger comes from. In his writings for The Sun in 1972, Superintendent Arthur Butler described the story of Fingers Freddy, who he claimed was a street showman who could perform various magic tricks, while accomplices would pick his spectators' pockets. <laughs> it was also alleged that this man was Emma Smith's protector, and that the two knew Jill the Ripper and planned to blackmail her by threatening to expose her as an illegal abortionist. This is one of the uh, Jill the Ripper theories. Smith turned up dead, and Freddy disappeared immediately after. It is unknown whether or not Freddy was also killed, as he simply may have fled the area knowing his life was in danger. That's kind of interesting. So, let's move on to Martha Tabram. August 7th, 1888. So she's the most likely to be a fifth if there was a fifth by most Ripperologists' estimations. So Martha Tabram is kind of accepted as being the most likely sixth victim if there was a sixth victim. 
Tabram, a hawker and a prostitute in the East End, was brutally murdered in the early morning hours of August 7th, 1888. On the eve of her murder, Tabram was out drinking with an acquaintance, a fellow unfortunate who went by the name of Pearly Paul, and two soldiers at a public house near George Yard Buildings. Shortly after midnight on August 6th, Tabram and her friend paired off with their clients, Tabram heading through the archway into George Yard on Wentworth Street. Tabram's body was first encountered at around 3.30 a.m. on August 7th by Carmen George Crow. He had been returning home from work, and because of the darkness in the stairwell, mistook her body as that of a drunk woman passed out on the landing. At around 5 a.m., her body was again discovered by another resident of George Yard Buildings, but by this time, there was enough light in the stairway to reveal her ghastly wounds. She had been stabbed 39 times. The wounds focused on her throat, chest, and lower abdomen and appeared to have been inflicted by a pocket knife, with the exception of one violent stab through her chest which looked to have been performed with a large dagger or bayonet. Many feel that Tabram was the Ripper's first victim due to the proximity of the murder in relation to the others, as well as the brutal nature of the crime. However, a number of experts also agree that another individual was responsible for Tabram's death and not Jack the Ripper. Tabram's wound patterns were distinctly different from the canonical five, in that she received multiple stab wounds as opposed to being slashed, which is believed to be the modus operandi of the Ripper. So there's also a few unidentified bodies that were found. On October 2nd, 1888, the headless and limbless torso of a woman was found dumped in a vault soon to become a section of the cellar of New Scotland Yard. The unidentified woman's arms were later found separately in the Thames River. So if there was another murder in October, that could possibly make the timeline fit a little bit better. The police had not attributed this incident to the Ripper at any time, despite rampant press speculation. They did suggest, however, that there could be a connection between this and the Pynchon Street murder. So the Pynchon Street murder occurred about a year later, on September 10th, 1989. We also have Annie Farmer on November 20th, 1888. The 40-year-old wife of a city road tradesman, Annie Farmer, left her husband and slowly reverted back to life as an unfortunate in the streets of Spitalfields. She went by a variety of nicknames, Flossie, Tilly, Dark Sarah, and Laughing Liz. On the morning of November 21st, 1888, the day after Mary Kelly's burial, Farmer picked up a man of shabby genteel, in a suit at 7.30 a.m. and returned with him to Satchel's Lodging House, 19 George Street, Spitalfields. He paid for a bed for both of them. Two hours later, Annie screamed loudly, and only moments later, the man flew out of the Doss House along George Street and into the Thrall Street. As he passed two cokemen, he exclaimed, What a cow! and then disappeared. Annie seemed quite distraught and claimed she was attacked by Jack the Ripper as her throat was lightly cut and bleeding. The crowds of George Street once again thought the Ripper had struck and gone free, and it wouldn't be long before panic overtook reason. The police, however, were skeptical of her claims as her injury was quite superficial and done with a blunt blade quite unlike the Ripper's deep wounds with a sharp weapon. And once it was discovered that she was hiding coins in her mouth, 
It was concluded that she had attempted to steal from the man and once discovered, lightly bruised her own throat with a blunt knife and screamed murder at her client, accusing him of being Jack the Ripper. The man, understandably frightened due to the very salient possibility of lynching, left as quickly as possible. The police called off the investigation and stopped searching for the man, believing he would turn himself in in order to clear his name. This never happened, and Framer never recanted her original story. So that's definitely one of the highly skeptical ones. We also have Rose Milette, December 20th, 1888. Milette was found strangled in Clark's yard on High Street, December 20th, 1888. Investigators assessed that her death may have been the result of a drunken stupor, as there were no visible signs of a struggle apparent anywhere on her body or clothing. Even though the inquest deemed it to be a murder, her death in no way resembled a ripper victim. Hmm, a drunken stupor murder? There doesn't seem to be conclusive evidence there. There was also disagreement on her death. Some returned with a diagnosis of willful murder by strangulation, which is the Ripper's M.O. Hmm. Elizabeth Jackson, June 1889. Elizabeth Jackson, also known as Lizzie, was born on March 18th, 1865, and was 24 at the time of her death in early June 89. She was the daughter of John Jackson, a stonemason who was born in County Tipperary, Ireland, and his wife Catherine, who was also born in Ireland but hailed from County Cork. Parts of Jackson's body were found in the Thames between May 31st and June 25th, 89. At the time of her death, she had been living as a prostitute in London's Soho Square. The New York World suggested that Jackson was the 10th victim of Jack the Ripper. However, there is no real reason to suppose that her death is connected with the Whitechapel murders. We also have Alice McKenzie, found July 17th, 1889, in Castle Alley, Whitechapel. She had suffered a severed carotid artery along with multiple small cuts and bruises across her body, evident of a struggle. One of the pathologists involved in the investigation dismissed this as a possible Ripper murder as it did not match with the findings of the three previous Ripper victims he had examined. Writers have also disputed Mackenzie as being a victim of Jack the Ripper, but rather of a murderer trying to copy his M.O. in an attempt to deflect suspicion. Huh. That's weird. There's different theories on how old Jack the Ripper was. Some people think if he was old or diseased, he was, he was trying to kill again, but was too weak to do it as strong as he did before. So there's a lot of weird theories like that. And Alice McKenzie is, kind of falls into that category. So let's go over the Pynchon Street murder, September 10th, 1889. The victim was named as such because she was found headless and legless under a railway arch on Pynchon Street, Whitechapel, September 10th, 1889. Isn't this the type of place you'd want to live, Maxwell? <laughs> There's like body parts, torsos being found, people being killed, people being stabbed left and right. Investigators believe that the victim was murdered at a different location and then the body dismembered for disposal. Very, very bizarre. All right, are you ready to get crazy? Let's do it. Mm-hmm. So one of the latest victims, potential victims, is Francis Coles, February 13th, 1891. We're talking several years later now. 
She was found at Swallow Gardens, a passageway beneath a railway arch between Chamber Street and Royal Mint Street, Whitechapel, with her throat slit. Visible wounds on the back of her head suggested that Coles was likely thrown to the ground after having suffered to knife wounds across her throat. Apart from the cuts to her throat, there were no mutilations to her body. A man named John Thomas Sadler, who authorities believed to be Jack the Ripper, was arrested and charged with her murder, but was later discharged on March 3rd, 1891, due to lack of evidence. Very, very bizarre. All right, let's get into the mind shock realm of insanity. We have Carrie Brown, April 24th, 1891. What do you think is unique about her murder, Maxwell? She was murdered in New York. That's cool. I mean, not cool. Just so the that's what that's one of the uh, theories for the American murderer. Yes, some people believe Jack the Ripper left London and traveled to New York, including Scotland Yard, who tracked a suspect, which we will go over in a dedicated episode. I mean, there's actually numerous suspects who left London, and it's kind of weird how all these different suspects were leaving London right around the time after Kelly's death. Or even years later, because we have Carrie Brown here in 1891. That's really, really bizarre. So this is one of the few alleged Ripper victims actually to have been killed outside of London. Carrie Brown remains for the most part a mystery. An older American prostitute, Carrie's lifeless body, was discovered in the room of the East River Hotel on the Manhattan waterfront in New York, United States, on the night of April 23rd to 24th, 1891. Before the release of Sugden's The Complete Jack the Ripper, very little was known of her and even less actually deemed worth writing about. She was, and still is, mentioned solely as a connection to the suspect George Chapman, who at the time of the murder was living in nearby Jersey City, New Jersey. Known fondly by her acquaintances as Old Shakespeare, due to her tendency to recite her favorite poet's sonnets after a few drinks, Carrie Brown checked into the East River Hotel on the southeast corner of Catherine Slip and Water Street with a man between 10.30 and 11 on the night of April 23rd. Her lifeless body was discovered lying on the bed the next morning, naked from the armpits down, according to the night clerk who found her. Her body was mutilated and she had been strangled. But there are few details known about her injuries. The details of the autopsy were played down a great deal by the press. And all we can know for sure is that there were cuts and stab wounds all over it. The doctor who performed the autopsy, named Jenkins, is said to have thought that the killer had attempted to completely gut his victim. Other than that, the exactness of her injuries remains a mystery. The murder of Carrie Brown remains unsolved. The question of whether or not it was a Ripper-related murder cannot at present be sufficiently answered. Detailed medical reports must be found concerning the exact nature of her injuries, and these must be matched to the M.O. of Jack the Ripper's canonical victims. If they do indeed match the injuries of, say, Chapman or Eddowes, then some serious rethinking concerning the case of the Jack the Ripper needs to be done. So there doesn't seem to be enough information even on that, which is strange. Are they keeping it under wraps? But newspapers did report that, you know, Jack the Ripper in New York or New York's Ripper. And there were also cases all over the world of similar eviscerations or disembowelments. Obviously, they can't all be Jack the Ripper, but it's theoretically possible that he had one, two, or a couple more victims elsewhere. We really have to go over the victims and the timelines and everything to get a good handle on everything that's going on. But just impressions 
right off the bat, I mean, is it possible all of these victims are Jack the Ripper victims if he was some kind of gang member initially who just really liked using a knife? <laughs> Maxwell? Um, that's possible. I mean, if he's, um, I don't know, he's used to killing or I don't know. <laughs> no thoughts on the podcast? <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm just looking through all these. There's so many books written on Jack the Ripper. It's insane. They did some movies, too. I mean, well, this podcast in... is specifically about whether or not there were f- more than five victims. Yeah, I don't know, Johnny. I mean, I think I think it's I think you can't really dogmatically say there's only five or there's five and they're definitely Jack the Ripper. Because what if one or two of them wasn't Jack the Ripper? Now you're now it's now it's rough. And then what if a cut one or two that weren't part of the canonical five were Jack the Ripper? So what we're going to attempt to do on this podcast series is, of course, lay out all the details, match up the timelines, and weigh all these different suspects in all these different situations to kind of see if there is a good suspect. If one or two murders don't line up, we have to really weigh that information because if we're saying there's definitely only five and a suspect has some kind of alibi for some of the other ones... I mean, that changes everything. If we don't even know the exact victims, how is it possible to find Jack the Ripper? DNA. <laughs> You're on the Kosminski bandwagon, Johnny? <laughs> Kosminski. Yeah, we're going to go over the main suspects and cases for and against. There's quite a few suspects that have good cases against them, and it couldn't have been all of them. But there could also have been... If there were two of them working together, that could explain some of the anomalies and inconsistencies in the case as well. But we hope you enjoyed another episode of Mindshock True Crime. If you like our podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Just check the link in the description. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell for notifications. If you like the video, like the video. Feel free to share it. And also leave any questions, comments, thoughts of any kind. And check us out on social media, Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, Patreon. Just check the description. This is Bruce McGuire signing off. And Maxwell Powers. And Johnny Mills. See you guys next time.